CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Mary Duke. Friday the 20th of October 1995, a 999 call was placed in Athai, County Kildare, asking for medical assistance. Early reports of the incident said that the call was placed by a local GP who had received an anonymous call herself at about 6pm that evening, telling her to go to a local woman's house as she was badly injured. At 7pm, an ambulance arrived at a local authority home in Clonmullen, Athai and found 29-year-old mother of six Mary Doog with her head wrapped in a cloth. The crew got her onto a stretcher and into the ambulance and began the journey to the nearest hospital. But by the time the ambulance arrived at Nace General Hospital, Mary Doog had died. Gardy, who responded to the scene, found three of Mary's children in the house, her five-year and six-month-old daughters and her two-and-a-half-year-old son. Mary also lived in the house with her long-term boyfriend, 19-year-old Stephen Davis, who was the father of her youngest child. Stephen worked for a local sandblasting company in Kildare. The couple had been together for two years and had initially lived together in a small caravan just outside of a thigh town before being allocated a council house in the Clonmullen estate. Mary's three older children lived with Mary's mother and sisters in another nearby estate. From the outset, Mary's death was being treated as suspicious. Mary appeared as if she had been badly beaten and had suffered internal injuries and a number of head wounds, though authorities were told she had fallen down some stairs. Gardy began to try and establish Ms. Duke's movements the night before to find the location where she had sustained her fatal injuries. They were investigating reports that an altercation had occurred in a pub on the evening before Mary Duke had died. It was well known that Mary would meet friends for a drink regularly on Thursday evenings after collecting her social welfare payment. She was in receipt of what was then called unmarried mother's allowance 
Indeed, in early reports of her death, Mary Duke was constantly referred to as an unmarried mother, underlining that although things were changing here in Ireland at that time, there was still very much a stigma associated with having kids outside of marriage. On the night of the 19th of October, Mary had been with friends at a pub in a thigh town and had left them at around midnight, saying she was going for chips before she headed home. A friend of Mary's spoke to the paper and said that Mary had been the victim of a physical attack before and had feared for her life, telling her friends that she thought she was going to be killed. The friend told the paper, quote, We all feared that sooner or later she would be killed. She used to tell us she was scared. End quote. As part of their investigation, Gardy searched the old graveyard in the town and the grounds of St. Michael's Church and the old convent, which were all thought to be possible locations for the attack on Mary Duke. The house in Clonmullen was also sealed off for forensic examinations. There was also a concern that some of Mary's younger children, particularly her five-year-old, might have seen something of importance to the Garda investigation. Garda Superintendent Michael Hurley told the press that they weren't looking for a weapon in the case and hadn't yet determined the motive behind Mary's fatal beating. No information had been gleaned from a gentle interview with Mary's five-year-old about what had happened to her mother. By Saturday evening, Garda sources told the press that they were following a definite line of inquiry. This information proved accurate when Gardy arrested a man in Carlo Town in connection with Mary's death the following morning. On Monday the 23rd of October, at a special sitting of the Carlo District Court, Stephen Davis, Mary's partner, was remanded in custody after being charged with her murder. When the charge was put to him, the court was told he had responded, quote, I didn't go out to kill her, end quote. Judge William Early ordered Mr. Davis to St. Patrick's Institution. The next day, David appeared at a Thigh District Court for a brief hearing where he was remanded in custody for a further 30 days. As he was brought in and out of court, a crowd of about a 100 people gathered outside and hurled abuse at him. Davis had grown up in Kilmeade, seven miles from a Thigh, and came from a well-respected family. His parents had separated when he was young, and Davis and his two brothers and three sisters were raised by their father, Tom, who was a soldier. Mary Duke was also from the local area and was one of six children, four girls and two boys, and she'd grown up in Carberry Park in Athai. Her parents, Michael and Margaret, had separated a number of years before, but they were still a close family and both of Mary's parents supported her and helped her with the children. Neighbours told the Evening Herald that Mary was a good-looking woman who was a loving and dedicated mother and a friendly and helpful neighbour. They also told the Sunday World that the Doug family had experienced a number of tragedies in recent years. In 1990, Mary's uncle, Willie Doug, was struck by a car and died. At Christmas 1994, Paddy Doug, Mary's grandfather, died in a house fire. He was infirm and confined to his bed, so was unable to escape the house when the fire broke out in the middle of the day. Mary's father Michael was attacked with an iron bar while in a thigh. He lost sight in one eye and it was said that the damage done to his face was such that it was a miracle that Michael had survived. His attacker had fled the area but was later arrested and served time for the assault. 
And then in May of 1995, another of Mary's uncles, 57-year-old Michael Duke, was repeatedly stabbed and killed just months before Mary herself was killed. On the 24th of May 1995, Michael Duke was at the home of Angela Kelly. He'd called to the house just after midnight and Angela had come out to him, sat in the car and was talking with him. Suddenly, her partner, 58-year-old John Lamon, appeared at the driver's side of the car. Angela had begun a relationship with Lamon when she returned from England 20 years before, and they had two children together. When Angela saw John Lamon, she said he had a wild look in his eyes, so she jumped out of the car and ran. She heard Mr. Duke cry out, quote, Look what you've done, you bastard, and yelled to her to get help. But Mr. Lamon ran after her, caught up with her, and then stabbed her in the back. Lamon had pulled her by the shoulder to turn her around, but then Mr. Duke arrived. He grabbed Lamon away from Angela while Lamon screamed at her that he was going to kill her and that she was a whore. Angela then ran to a neighbor's for help and lost consciousness. She was rushed to hospital and lost a kidney as a result of the stab to the back. Michael Duke was stabbed nine times, suffering wounds to his face and body. He died of his injuries. John Lamon was arrested and charged with the murder of Michael Duke and the unlawful wounding of Angela Kelly. He stood trial for these charges in December of 1996. Angela Kelly took the stand and recounted the night of the attack. She said that Mr. Lamon often became violent when drunk, and he suspected that she and Mr. Duke were having an affair. This was something that Angela vehemently denied. But a witness, Patrick Campbell, told the court that he had seen Mr. Duke and Ms. Kelly embracing in the car outside Ms. Kelly's house, and then Mr. Lamon arriving and chasing after Ms. Kelly. The trial lasted five days, with Mr. Lamon saying in Garda interviews that he had first gone after Michael and he didn't know why he had done what he did. He said he still loved Angela and was very sorry for what had happened. After deliberating for five hours, the jury in the case returned a majority verdict of 10 to 2 that Mr. Lamon was guilty of the murder of Michael Duke. He was unanimously found guilty of the unlawful wounding of Angela Kelly. A seven-year sentence was imposed on Lamon for unlawful wounding, and he was handed down the mandatory life sentence for murder. The sentences were to run concurrently. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends, that's friends without the R. With Best Fiends, the fun never ends. There are literally thousands of levels to play and tons of cute characters to collect. So if you're tired of the same old puzzle games, start playing Best Fiends. I love that every time I play Best Fiends, there's always something new going on. Whether it's a new challenge, fun monthly event, or just new levels. Right now, I'm enjoying collecting friendship bracelets at the Darts Tent Challenge and chasing after Minutia's Most Wanted. The makers of Best Fiends have created a whole world right on my phone. And it's really great to have a change of pace from researching crime or just the stresses of everyday life. Best Fiends is so colorful and sweet, it really does the trick and it helps to relax me. 
Don't forget that you can add me as a friend on the app by heading to settings, my friends, and entering the code 19.32.26.7. Trust me, you don't want to miss out on this game. So join me and millions of people who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp. And Mens Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash mens. The very best time to begin looking after your mental health is right now. Change is hard, big or small, fast or gradual. A lot of people are adjusting to change in their lives at the moment. Therapy can help make sure that you're equipped to handle whatever life may throw at you. It's a journey that can be quite daunting to start off with, but BetterHelp makes starting that journey so much easier. BetterHelp match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs, and you can start your online professional counseling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapists that may not be available in your area, and BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available, and you can send messages to your therapist between sessions and get timely and thoughtful responses. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash M-E-N-S to join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counsellors in all 50 states. And remember, BetterHelp are offering Mens Rea listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens. On Monday, March 3, 1997, Stephen Davis went on trial at the Central Criminal Court for the murder of Mary Duke before Mr. Justice Budd and a jury of 11 men and one woman. Kenneth Mills, senior counsel, was prosecuting on behalf of the state. He told the court that after having been in the pub that Thursday night, Mary Duke met with the defendant, Stephen Davis. They had an argument at around midnight and Davis had grabbed Mary by the arm, twisting it behind her back. He was also seen kicking and punching her. Gardie had intervened and told them to go home. The court would hear that the family's babysitter would say that at around 3am, Stephen and Mary had arrived back to the house and that Davis had Miss Doog slung over his shoulder. For 12 hours, Mary had lain in her home gravely injured after a violent beating until one of the children was instructed by Mr. Davis to get a doctor. Counsel described the beating as, quote, chastisement to an extraordinarily unacceptable degree, end quote. The court heard that on Thursday the 19th of October 1995, Mary Duke had gone to the pub with her youngest child at about noon. She'd collected the other two from school and then returned to the pub with them later in the day. When her babysitter called to the pub that afternoon to collect money, Mary had asked if she would take the kids. She'd agreed. Later, Mary had borrowed money from her sister and hitched a lift into Carlow Town to drink there. Then she went back home. She'd torn her trousers while out, 
So she changed and then headed back into a thigh, telling her babysitter that she was going looking for Stephen Davis. She went to Cheers Pub on the main street in a thigh. Meanwhile that evening, Davis had returned home from work at around 7pm. He went out saying he was going looking for Mary and ended up in a pub too. Sometime after midnight, the two met up. The guardie had intervened in their fight and told them to go home. They were seen walking together back towards their home in Clonmullen, still yelling at each other, and then they both turned into the church grounds. Veronica Mitchell was the babysitter for Mary Duke that day. She was called as a witness in the case and recalled for the court having met Mary at the pub at around half three and agreeing to take the kids back to the house. Ms. Mitchell had told Davis when he returned at seven that Mary was out at the pub. She told the court that he'd gotten on his bike and gone off, but he'd come back later and changed his clothes. Ms. Mitchell said that Davis was angry when he left the house the second time. Veronica recalled that she had seen Davis come back in the night with Mary Duke slung over his shoulders. They'd headed upstairs to the bedroom. Miss Mitchell hadn't seen anything too clearly, though, as there was no electricity in the house. She'd called up the stairs when she was leaving, and Davis had yelled down right, indicating that he'd heard her and she could go. Ms. Mitchell was cross-examined by barrister-at-law Roderick O'Hanlon defending, and she told the junior counsel that she was unaware of Mary Doog having fallen down the stairs in the house that night. Mary Kelly told the court that she had stopped to give a woman a lift just outside Carlow Town on the Athai Road near to the Sugar Beet Factory. It was between twenty past ten and half past. There was a strong smell of drink from the woman who fell onto her shoulder a few times during the journey. The woman had also told her that she was, quote, worried about going home to the guy she was living with, end quote. Ms. Kelly had dropped the woman off at a house in Clonmullen in Athai, and Gardie had later shown her a picture of the deceased. She confirmed that this was the woman she had given a lift to that Thursday night. The next day, the court heard from the GP who had called out to Mary's home in Clonmullen on Friday the 20th of October. Dr. Deirdre Collins had been seeing patients during her surgery hours that afternoon when, at a quarter to five, she received a call from a woman asking her to come and see Ms. Doog, who was in a bad way. The caller said Mary might have fallen down the stairs and was injured. Dr. Collins arrived at the Clonmullen home at around 20 to 6 and found Mary Doog upstairs in the bedroom. Dr. Collins spoke to the woman, who, she told the court, was able to speak and had told her the day of the week, her name and who the doctor herself was. Despite this, Dr. Collins told the court that Mary Doog was obviously not well. She'd asked Mary who had hit her and Mary had responded that two men had assaulted her the night before. Mary told Dr. Collins that after fighting with Stephen Davis, she'd run off behind the church and the assault had occurred there. Mary said she didn't know who the two men were. Dr. Collins had observed bruises on Mary's face, especially around her eyes. One was almost swollen shut. Her shoulder was badly bruised, as was her nose. There were more bruises on her arms, stomach, chest and lower abdomen. The doctor couldn't see any active bleeding due to poor lighting in the room, but Mary had told her that she was bleeding. Dr. Collins decided the best course of action was to call for an ambulance. 
The court also heard from Dr. Kazan, who was working in Nace General Hospital the night that Mary Duke was admitted there. He had been informed while Mary was en route to the hospital that she had collapsed while being transported. When Mary Duke was brought into the A&E, she was examined and no pulse was found. She was declared dead at 7.25pm. Josephine McHugh told the court that she had seen the defendant in the early hours of the 20th of October, holding Mary Duke by the arm, which he'd bent up behind her. She'd seen the accused kicking the woman with both feet as Ms. Duke curled up in a ball on the path. Ms. McHugh had seen a passing patrol car stop and speak with Mr. Davis. The guardie then left. Mary Duke had also spoken to her, and Ms. McHugh said she seemed nervous. Later, she saw Stephen Davis standing behind a guard car near to the entrance of the housing estate at Clonmullen. He was shouting and waving his hands around. He'd then run off in the direction of the convent school. On cross-examination, Josephine insisted that she had seen everything that she'd told the court, rather than just seeing Mr. Davis twisting Mary Duke's arm behind her back. She said she had seen Mary close to the ground, being kicked. Ms. McHugh told the defence's senior counsel, Mr. Barry White, that she had nothing against the defendant, but did agree that she had a summons against him in October of 1995, and Davis had been due in court in the days after the attack on Mary in relation to this. Ms. McHugh said that those proceedings had nothing to do with her testimony. She denied that she was painting the worst possible picture of Stephen Davis that she could. Then Dr. John Harbison, the state pathologist, told the court about what he had found during the course of the post-mortem examination of Mary Duke's body. Mary had suffered significant injuries all over her body. Dr. Harbison noted that very severe violence was targeted to Mary's lower abdomen, which had caused her bladder to rupture, despite its protection by bone. Bruising from her lower abdomen went right down to her groin and around to the lower portion of her buttocks. There were tears and possible bite marks to her groin. None of these injuries were consistent with sexual intercourse even a violent rape, and in Dr. Harbison's opinion, they had been caused by a kick, punch, or weapon. Harbison had also noted injuries to Ms. Duke's neck that he said showed an attempt at strangulation had taken place. There were also significant injuries to her right shoulder, which had been dislocated and showed extensive bruising. In addition, Mary had two black eyes and further injuries to her face, ears, neck, chest, arms, legs, back and abdomen. A number of her ribs were fractured. This could have occurred in the course of attempts to resuscitate Mary, but Dr. Harbison said that he thought it more likely that they had been broken earlier in the course of the attack. The pathologist said that some of these injuries were consistent with the appearance of injuries inflicted by an angular object. Mary Duke had ultimately died from shock and complications of the multiple severe injuries she had suffered. Dr. Harbison's cross-examination took place the following day, on Wednesday the 5th of March. He agreed with senior counsel for the defence, Barry White, that a dislocated shoulder was commonly seen in cases of falls. However, the injury to Mary Duke's throat was not typical of a fall, he said. 
when Mr. White asked whether it was possible for the neck injury to have been caused if Mary Duke had fallen downstairs and become lodged against a handrail, Dr. Harbison had said that the scenario was possible. After this, Jane Davis, the defendant's aunt, told the court that she had been asked by one of Mary's children to come to the house on the afternoon of the 20th of October. The child had been sent to her by Stephen Davis. When she arrived at the house, Mary Duke was upstairs in bed and she could see bruises on her face, neck and arms. Jane spoke to Mary, who told her that she had been attacked by two men at the back of the chapel the night before. Ms. Davis said that throughout this conversation, Mary was in and out of consciousness and appeared to be falling asleep in between talking. Mary had then asked Jane for a mirror to see herself, and after looking in it, Mary had fainted again. Eventually, a doctor arrived and called an ambulance, but Ms. Davis told Mr. White that she had heard the doctor say that Mary Duke's condition was not an emergency. Another neighbour testified that Stephen Davis had sat by the side of the bed with tears in his eyes, holding Mary's hand. She was freezing due to the lack of electricity in the house. Garda Peter McConnon gave evidence that he had been on patrol in a thigh and had stopped at a quarter past midnight on the 20th of October. He'd seen the accused holding on to Mary Duke's arm and he had it twisted up behind her back. Garda McConnon had stopped and turned the car as soon as he could and returned to where he'd seen the defendant and Mary. At that point, the Garda told the court that Mr. Davis had both his arms around Mary Duke. Garda McConnon had asked the two if there was a problem. Mary didn't initially answer him, but Mr. Davis had said that there was nothing wrong. When the Garda asked Mary directly if her arm was okay, she finally said yes and told him that everything was okay. The Garda continued that Davis had called him aside and said that Mary had been drinking all day and he'd been out looking for her. Garda McConnon had advised Davis to go home under provisions of the Public Order Act and Davis had responded that he would when he was ready. According to the officer, Davis appeared, quote, a little irate, end quote. An ambulance driver, Tony Walsh, then took the stand and outlined for the court his recollections of the 20th of October. He had arrived at Mary Duke's house that evening at three minutes past six in the ambulance. It was quickly clear that Ms. Duke could not walk, and so she was put into a stretcher and brought to the ambulance. Mr. Davis had come in the ambulance with her. At 6.47, Ms. Duke had gone into cardiac arrest, and he and a colleague had attempted resuscitation using chest compressions. They also gave her oxygen. They arrived at NACE Hospital at two minutes to seven and continued resuscitation in the ambulance for 12 minutes before transferring Mary into the hospital. Their attempts to revive Ms. Duke carried on for another 20 to 25 minutes, he said. On the fourth day of the trial, Thursday the 6th of March, Detective Sergeant Seamus Quinn from the Garda Technical Bureau told the court that he had examined a large area around the church in Athai. There, he had noted two two-pence pieces and pieces of a broken watch. In a field nearby, he found an eyeliner pencil, an eyeshadow brush, and a red and grey coat. There was also an area of blood-stained grass and a torn-up bra on top of a nearby wall. In a schoolyard, he found a torn pair of women's underwear. 
In his examination of Mary Duke's body, he had observed a pattern of bruising beneath Mary Duke's chin and on the right side of her chest. He said there was a definite pattern to the bruising, which was similar to a four-sided star. Then, Detective Garda Kevin Brady testified regarding a conversation he had had with Stephen Davis at Nace General Hospital, where the defendant had given an account of the day and night before Mary had died, where he was out drinking and looking for Mary. In this statement, David said he saw Mary and he'd caught up with her and asked where she'd been, but Mary wouldn't say. They'd had an argument, which was when Agarda had spoken to them, and then, according to Mr. Davis, Mary Duke had disappeared. Davis had gone looking for her, and as he walked past some steps near a church, he had heard moaning. When Davis went to look, he saw Mary lying at the bottom of the steps. Davis had told the guard that Mary's trousers were open and her top was pulled up, and her coat was on the ground next to her. The defendant stated that Mary had told him she'd been followed by two men and had been raped. After this, Davis had carried Mary home. The defendant told Detective Garda Brady that he'd put Mary upstairs in bed and that when he went back downstairs to lock the front door as the babysitter left, Mary had come tumbling down the stairs on top of him and the babysitter. He'd carried Mary back up the stairs and put her in bed again. The detective then told the court that he had arrested Mr. Davis on the 21st of October and brought him to a thigh Garda station for questioning. Davis was very quiet on the way to the station and the guard recalled he had asked about funeral arrangements and whether he'd be able to go. Davis also asked if he'd be allowed to see his child. That afternoon, the jury were sent out for legal argument to take place in the case. They were told that they wouldn't be required again until after the weekend, on the afternoon of the following Monday. As it happened, the jury were not required until the morning of Tuesday the 11th to facilitate the hearing of the application. When the trial resumed, the jury were read notes taken during the course of Davis's interview with Gardy in a thigh guard station. After describing his movements on the evening of the 19th and eventually meeting up with Mary and arguing, and having the interaction with Garda McConnon, Davis said he'd come across another Garda who was changing a tire on a car. He'd asked these officers to go after Mary and make sure that she went home, but the officers refused. At this point, Davis's statement differed from the initial story he had told the Garda in the hospital. Davis said he'd followed Mary into the grounds of the convent, and they'd argued again. The defendant said Mary, quote, was after getting her own back on me and fell on the clay going into the field. Then I went in and kicked her, end quote. He'd continued, quote, I was so vexed I kept kicking her. I don't know how many times I kicked her. I was in a rage when she told me it was none of my business where she was and she'd got her own back on me, end quote. After kicking Mary, Davis said he'd grabbed her by the hood of her coat and tried to lift her up but she kept falling sideways back to the ground. Davis managed to lift her up onto his shoulder, and as he headed back out through the gate, Mary had fallen again onto the concrete. After dropping her once more, Davis said he got Mary onto his shoulder a third time, and she'd said to him, bring me home, bring me home. Eventually, he did manage that. 
The guardie had asked Davis if he had intended to kill Mary while he was kicking her, and he had said, quote, no way. Davis had also described what had occurred the following day. The next morning he'd been woken by the baby crying, and he'd got up and given the kids crisps, biscuits, and lemonade. He'd gone to an AA meeting from 11 to 2 and fed the kids again when he returned. At one point he brought Mary a bucket as she felt ill. Davis told Gardy that Mary had been wearing white underwear and a white bra, but he didn't know where these had ended up. He said he thought Mary might have put them in the hot press in the house, but he wasn't sure. The defendant had also recalled that Mary told him she was bleeding from her privates and that she had changed her underwear. Davis said he'd asked Mary if she wanted a doctor, but Mary told him that the house needed to be cleaned first and the kids dressed. Davis said he'd done this and then sent the oldest child to get his aunt. When Jane arrived, she'd asked what had happened, and Davis said he told her that he and Mary had been arguing. But then Ms. Duke had asked him not to say anything about their fight. Finally, the doctor arrived, followed by the ambulance. On Wednesday the 12th of March, Sergeant James O'Mara told the court about the circumstances around Mr. Davis's detention in a thigh Garda station. The sergeant said that after a request by Davis for a solicitor, he had made every attempt to make contact with this lawyer, but the man that Davis had asked for was unavailable and another lawyer had arrived some time later. Sergeant O'Mara testified that he had not told investigating Gardee that they should not interfere with Mr. Davis until they had waited a reasonable period for a solicitor to arrive. O'Mara agreed that he had granted Davis a rest period that night and agreed with Mr. White, defending that he hadn't told the defendant or what the circumstances of these would be. It was the case that he had told Davis questioning would continue for up to another six hours if a form wasn't signed by Davis, suspending the questioning. Senior counsel Barry White put it to him that the sole purpose of extending the period of detention for Mr. Davis had been to try and get a confession from him, but Sergeant O'Mara denied this. The following day, a Garda ballistics expert gave evidence. Detective Sergeant Seamus Quinn said that he had examined boots taken from Stephen Davis and had identified a pattern on their sole of two four-sided stars. The detective sergeant said that this design was similar to the distinct four-sided star-shaped bruising found on Mary Duke's face and chest. At this point, evidence for the prosecution's case had concluded. The defence informed the court that they would not be presenting any evidence of their own. John Aylmer, junior counsel, gave the closing statement on behalf of the DPP. He simply reminded the jury that Dr. Harbison's conclusion at post-mortem was that Mary Duke had died due to a severe beating. The defendant had admitted to carrying out that beating. Barry White, for the defence, said that the jury had three verdicts open to them. Not guilty, guilty of manslaughter, or guilty of murder. A murder verdict was not appropriate in this case, he said. Mr. White argued that Stephen Davis had not intended to kill Mary Duke, and Davis had been provoked the night of Mary's assault. The senior counsel said that Davis had come home that day to find that Mary had gone off and left the children. 
He'd gone looking for Mary and had been unable to find her until well into the night. This had made Davis angry. When he spoke with Gardy, Davis had admitted to kicking Mary, but Mr. White asserted that this had been a total loss of control on his client's part. Davis had said he had been in a rage when Mary told him it was none of his business where she'd been that night and when she'd implied that she'd cheated on him by saying she'd got her own back on him. Barry White said the jury must put themselves in Davis's position and take into account his temperament, character and circumstances. In doing this, the lawyer asserted that they would find he had been provoked and that the killing of Mary Doog did not therefore rise to the level of murder. Counsel for the defence continued that, in considering the two other verdicts available to them, the jury had to decide which of the various injuries suffered by Ms. Doog had been inflicted by Stephen Davis and whether that particular injury had contributed to Ms. Doog's death. It was Mr. White's assertion that the only injury that Mr. Davis could have caused was the injury to Mary Doog's bladder. Mr. White went on to say that the defendant had not aimed his kicks towards the more sensitive areas of Mary's body and that taking Davis's temperament into account, he had not used excessive force. The only evidence in the case against his client were Mr. Davis's own statements, which were not self-serving. This he took to mean that the statements were truthful. Mr. Justice Budd began his charge to the jury on the afternoon of Tuesday the 18th, and this continued on throughout the next day. The 11 men and one woman of the jury were sent out on Thursday and spent that night in a hotel. They deliberated for nearly seven hours before reaching a verdict on Friday the 21st of March. They found Stephen Davis guilty of murder by a majority of 11 to 1. Davis stood quietly as the verdict was read and the life sentence imposed on him. Mary Duke's family sat nearby and wiped away tears. Mr. Justice Budd had been prepared to defer sentencing to allow a probation report to be prepared as well as a victim impact statement from the Duke family. But Barry White had asked for Justice Budd to go ahead. Right after this, Mr. White sought leave to appeal, saying that Mr. Justice Budd had erred in dismissing an application to have the jury discharged when four newspapers had printed pictures of Stephen Davis in handcuffs during the course of the trial. In addition, Mr. White said the judge had erred in not admitting the contents of a third recorded interview with Mr. Davis. Leave to appeal was refused. The Sunday World reported that Davis had a blank look on his face throughout the trial, except for when the jury was out. During these periods, he could be seen turning in his seat, making comments and joking with his family who sat behind him. Press in the courtroom also noted that he had the name Mary tattooed across his knuckles. When the trial was over, Michael Doog, Mary's devastated father, spoke to the press. He said that he believed Mary had been beaten and abused by Stephen Davis over the whole two years of their relationship, and he'd seen bruises on Mary a number of times. He told the press, quote, She tried to hide the bruises from me. She was living in daily terror. The full extent of what she had to endure will probably never be known, end quote. Mr. Doog also recalled telling Mary's mother, Margaret, two days before their daughter's death, 
that, quote, one of these days that bastard is going to kill her. He continued that Stephen Davis was very jealous and he didn't want Mary going out at all. Once, when Mary had tried to get away from him, Davis had held their baby girl, threatening to drop her on her head if Mary didn't come back. She was too frightened to leave, according to her dad, and Mary wouldn't let anyone go to the Gardee on her behalf either. She'd begged family members not to mention the abuse. The Sunday World reported that there had been a series of attacks on Mary before her death. In the spring of 1995, just after Mary had given birth to her youngest child, the paper said she had been beaten with a hurley stick. The Sunday Tribune reported that Mary's sister Fiona had seen the deceased two weeks before her death and described her as being black and blue. Fiona also said that Mary had been offered another council house, one just across the road from her sisters and mother, but according to Fiona, Davis wouldn't allow Mary to take it. She also said Mary drank because she was so unhappy in her relationship and because she was afraid of Davis. A friend and neighbour of Mary's told journalist Cahill O'Shea that she had been woken one night by Mary's screams. The friend had run to her bedroom window to see what the matter was and saw Davis attacking Mary once again with a hurley in the front garden of their house. She told the reporter that she could hear the crack of the wooden stick as it made contact with Mary, and she was surprised that Davis hadn't killed her then, given the ferocity of the blows. The friend had called Gardee, but Mary wouldn't make a complaint. A second friend had recalled an incident that had occurred in a pub in Athai. Davis had grabbed Mary by the neck and pulled her off a bar stool before throwing her out the door of the pub. Once outside, Davis had shoved Mary to the ground with her face making an almighty crack as she hit the pavement. After the trial, the family had been upset by the impression that people might have taken of Mary from evidence heard in the case, that she'd been out drinking all day. Michael Doog said his daughter's priority had always been her children. Mary had been a great mother, he said. After her death, her mother Margaret and two of Mary's sisters took in Mary's children. Stephen Davis brought an appeal for his conviction, which was heard in 2000, with his legal team arguing that, one, there was insufficient evidence that Mary's death was caused by Davis's actions, two, that the defense of provocation had not been properly explained to the jury by the trial judge, and three, that pictures of Davis had appeared in the press with shackles and handcuffs on him, which were prejudicial. The Criminal Court of Appeal found that there was ample evidence that Davis had caused the injuries that had led to Mary's death, and indeed that his attack had been the sole cause of injuries inflicted on Ms. Duke. Concerning the publication of prejudicial material, the appeals court noted that it was a recognised humanitarian value, both in Ireland and abroad, that prisoners should not be exposed to public view or subjected to excessive or unnecessary use of restraints. The court acknowledged both the difficulty posed in moving incarcerated people around the courts out of public view in every case, and the fact that it appeared the press had entirely ignored Justice Budd's disapproval of the publication of photos of Davis in this case. However, what was before the Court of Appeal was whether the pictures themselves had prejudiced Davis to the extent that this prejudice would affect the outcome of the case. 
The three-judge panel said that the evidence in this case was overwhelming and of high quality, such that, quote, it is scarcely conceivable that any other verdict could have been come to, end quote. The repeated publication of the photos of Davis in double restraints did likely amount to contempt of court, and the appeals court said that in future, the criminal court could refer to this judgment to find publications in contempt for the publishing of similar pictures. The appeals court waded grudgingly into the use of provocation, a defence that they noted diverged widely in Ireland from other common law countries and had caused a number of difficulties in practice here, particularly due to the subjective nature for the test of provocation. They noted that the defence will only be put to the jury after a judge had decided that there was evidence that the accused may have had a sudden and temporary loss of control, and it would be the jury's job to decide the credibility of that evidence. The appeal court ruled that in this case, there had been no defence of provocation raised by the accused. The defence team had merely invoked provocation as a defence. In fact, the Court of Appeal stated that it did not believe that there was sufficient evidence to leave the issue of provocation to the jury at all, even if the trial judge had done this with misgivings and had underlined that the defence had not presented evidence of the accused's character or temperament other than the statement made to the guardee that Davis had been vexed. The charge to the jury was also found to be proper. And so the appeal was dismissed in its entirety. After the trial, Mary's family were angry that Gardie had come into contact with Mary and Stephen Davis and had not intervened in any significant way. Gardie said without someone willing to press charges to go to court, there was little that they could do, despite new laws and guidelines brought in in the 90s to deal with situations of domestic violence. Monica O'Connor from Women's Aid spoke to the Evening Herald and said that Gardie were not enforcing the laws and guidelines in a consistent way. In response to these queries, a Garda spokesperson from Mathai Station said, quote, The power of arrest is one thing, but what do you do if the witness won't go to court? It's fine to have guidelines, but if you have two people involved in a row and they say everything is fine, you wonder what kind of ground you're standing on. You have to tread very carefully. End quote. Ms. O'Connor pointed out that in the case of Mary Doob, Agarda had in fact witnessed some of the violent behaviour that night. She called for strict enforcement and public education, saying, quote, Before this, they said they didn't have legislation and the powers. Then, they don't have the guidelines. But now, they have both. They have no excuse. They have to be seen to act. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Rachel Armstrong, Gita Van Bilsen, Phil Rehill, Clara Murphy, Dale Lupo, Jerry Hannafin, Jennifer Bigler, Anna Iris Marquez Ramgrab, and Darren Mahoney. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to be able to keep Mens Rea going and, along with my undying love for helping out, 
you get ad-free and bonus episodes and nifty merch. So head over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends and BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, guys, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Do you wait patiently every week for Netflix to drop its latest true crime offering? Do your suggested videos on YouTube look like a top 10 countdown of the most unbelievable crime cases? Well, you are among friends. What's Up Doc, the true crime documentary podcast is a bi-weekly show hosted by me, Gemma Delaney. Season three drops May 4th and what a season I've got lined up for you. Don't forget to subscribe to hear all about the best and latest true crime documentaries out there. And you can find us at What's Up Doc Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. What's Up Doc, the true crime documentary podcast. Let me tell you what's up.